Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Nacho Time. Today, we are here to discuss, as you could probably notice by the title, medical aid in dying, which really anything, any topic surrounding death is an interesting one. Most people tend to stray away from topics like that. Uh, really, most things controversial, but it's strange because these, this whole idea, it's really a big split issue, especially uh, in the United States. One statistic I read said that 54% of doctors support the legalization of medical aid and dying and 31% do not. Uh, but we're going to need to get more into detail to find some terms, make sure everyone's on the same page so we know what we're talking about. But before jumping into that, I'd like to introduce my guests today, uh, Miss Rachel Wedge, or should I say Second Lieutenant Wedge. Thanks for on the podcast. <laughs> Hi, yes. Thanks for having me. And Rachel is my girlfriend, and she's living over in Hawaii right now. And uh, do you want to give a little background on yourself, school and work? Yeah, so I am a very, very, very novice nurse. So I just graduated in May. Um, I'm active duty Army, and I started a new job at Tripler Medical Center here in Honolulu. And currently work on the ortho-neurovascular floor. So I see a lot of patients post-surgery um, from like hip replacements, knee replacements, a lot of fractures, broken bones. But we do get a lot of medical patients as well. And then um, the occasional comfort care patient or palliative care patient. So kind of see a lot, but I did just start. So very beginner. Yeah, so, so while Rachel's not like a dedicated, or you're not a dedicated hospice nurse or palliative care nurse, like I thought you would be a good guest for this because you're one of my friends in the medical industry, first of all. But then being a nurse, you see, and you kind of made this point to me earlier, sometimes nurses tend to see the more, you know, the patients that are more ill or they see the pain perhaps a little bit more than doctors since they're kind of their acting caregivers. Is that right? Yeah, I would definitely say that the nurses see the most of it or like see the worst of it. Even just like talking to a lot of my coworkers, like they talked a lot about how like doctors don't really know about death and like they don't see like the day to day. They kind of do their rounds. They do their like plans of care and all of that. And they do like honestly do the best they can, but they don't see like the day to day stuff. So I think um, a nurse's perspective is pretty intense in this. And yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm glad to have you here and to get your opinions on this. Uh, so another kind of reason why this is relevant, this whole topic is the idea of death anxiety is, uh, according to one um, statistic I read, is the number six greatest fear across all men and women in the U.S. I think behind like flying and a, a few other weird ones that I actually wasn't expecting. Um, but the whole idea of death is strange. And the the whole, like the idea that I've come to over the past few years is I try to equate death to being born. So if you ask a person, what's it like, or what was it like before you were born? You have, the, the question makes no sense. You weren't conscious for this. You have no idea what was going on at the time. I mean, read history books, of course, but you have no experience before birth. So when someone says, okay, what's it like after you die? My answer typically is, oh, it's probably similar to before you were born. It's just like this state of non-existence. So that's been kind of comforting to me at least. Uh, 
Rachel, what's your initial take on death and just the, the fear behind it and the anxiety? Um, I think it stems mostly just because it is so unknown. So I think a lot of people fear the unknown, obviously, and um, they find that comfort in like religion or heaven and things like that. And you can find comfort in like different ways that like you think that's going what's going to happen to you like after you die. But honestly, like no one actually like knows like and you can't ever be like so certain. So I think everyone at least a little bit is pretty scared and has that anxiety about like what's going to happen after that. Yeah, sure. I mean, the unknown is what drives a lot of people to religion. I think as soon as we don't have an answer for something, people want to have something. And sometimes a story is better than just saying, I don't know to some people. So I definitely agree with that. Definitely. So let's go ahead and define a few terms here, just so we're all on the same page, uh, because there's a few nuances that are pretty important. Uh, so the book that Rachel and I actually just finished reading is When My Time Comes by Diane Rem. And she discusses this in depth, um, interviews a number of people from across the spectrum uh, on this topic. But one of the points that she makes is it's called medical aid in dying. You don't associate the word suicide with this phrasing um, because suicide is the act of killing oneself. Uh, and the medical aid in dying, it, it's not you killing yourself. It's the disease or the terminal illness that you have. That's the cause of death. It, it's not like the, the uh, even like an injection would be more euthanasia, but in the book they describe uh, a liquid that you take. You first prep your stomach and then it's the liquid that you end up taking. Uh, but it's, it's very specific. It's not a, it's not suicide. Uh, it's you are dying from this illness or this disease. Yeah. So, I think the book mentions it like a couple times and it says something along the lines of these people aren't choosing between like life and death. Like they don't yeah. have an option for life, which I think describes it pretty well because suicide is taking one's life when you have the option to live longer and you have like a life ahead of you. Whereas these people, they are dying like nonetheless, like they don't have that option. So I think that kind of encapsulates like why we don't use the word suicide like associated with this. Yeah, no, that was a good point. So maybe let's um, jump into a couple arguments. So just for clarity or for transparency's sake, I suppose. Um, I've talked to Rachel about this off podcast and both of us are fairly supportive of um, the idea that uh, people should at least have the option uh, to to get a hold of these drugs if they uh, meet certain criteria. Uh, so maybe let's start with the opposition to it. Um, what, what arguments from the book, Rachel, were, or, uh, you know, from Diane's interviewing, what points may have been more convincing than others for you? And what kind of made sense to people who opposed the um, medical aid in dying? Um, well, I think there were two, like, pretty, or like, there were only two, like, arguments against it, for the most part. And one was religious beliefs and religious reasons, which, personally, I think, if you believe something, you should be able to act in that way, but you shouldn't like put that on other people. So other people should still 
have that option available to them, even if you don't believe into it. So I think that argument is kind of hard to be like really strong in opposing this for everyone, or at least the availability for everyone. And then the second argument they talked about was um, like a slippery slope into elder abuse, which with the guidelines that are in place for medical aid and dying, I think that slippery slope could be really hard to go down. Um, but And I think there's a lot of things in healthcare that could become a slippery slope. So I don't know if that is like a super strong argument as well, but that would probably be the stronger one out of the two, especially because I guess there is uh, elder abuse in like nursing homes and like palliative care situations that we do hear about. Um, but I, and I guess I could see how it could happen, but it's kind of hard for me to wrap my head around with all the guidelines and everything that you have to go through to get medical aid and dying. Right. And some of the safeguards that are in place, at least right now in various states, um, one of them was you have to be diagnosed with a, a terminal illness and have uh, six months left to live. That should be the diagnosis. Um, what were some of the other ones? Uh, yeah, so you have to have two doctors sign off. Yep. You have to be of sound state of mind, like approved by those doctors. Right. Um, uh, witnesses think... need to like attest for you, right? Yeah. There's a whole like application process for it. I'm trying to look it up here. Yeah, um, and then like even then, if you live past your diagnosis of um, like six months to live. If you live past that, like no one's forcing you to take it and no one's ever going to like force you to take it. Um, well, I guess ideally, but yeah, well, I mean, that's the slippery slope they're talking about. Obviously, I think so. It doesn't make sense, but yeah. And they also talked about like monetary issues. Like if someone could gain something from your death or like gain money or like wealth, then like, it could be abused in some way. So I could maybe see that situation. Religion was definitely a big one. There was a chapter in the book where uh, Diane interviewed a priest. I'm forgetting his name, uh, but he talked about the sanctity and value of life, which I can see appealing to a lot of people. Uh, his view was that um, there's always another option beyond medical aid and dying. Uh, if, if, you know, you're feeling down or depressed, then maybe it's a result of unfit palliative care or uh, you need spiritual counseling. Uh, so he was like, he was trying to throw out every single possible thing. And then like dying is viewed. If you choose when to die, you're going against God's will because you're taking that into your own hands and it should have been God's choice. But my, my question to that would be, what if it was God's choice to have this person, quote unquote, kill themselves. Um, like, how, how are we to distinguish what is and isn't God's will? Because from like the beginning of time, or however long gods have existed, or thought to have existed, uh, there's been various interpretations. And there hasn't been one person that perfectly, or that can per perfectly translate God's will, as far as I know, there's always going to be contradictions. So that was something that I thought when the, when the priest was kind of talking about it. Yeah, I think I agree with you. I think that's 
kind of hard for people to grasp and they definitely lean into that when they don't have answers. So I don't know. For, I think what it kind of came down to was what do you value more? Is this pain that you're experiencing or you're going through, um, say, you know, on a scale of one to 10 and for, in terms of pain, like one, it was just be like a, a numbness and you actually may have a better idea since you may deal with this on a more regular basis. What's a normal pain scale that you rate people on? Uh, we usually use like a one to 10, 10 being like the worst pain, nothing else matters at the moment. Okay. So like, say you're at a constant nine, like who's to say that it wouldn't be better for you. And if say you're in your old age and you've lived a good life, the whole idea of giving up control, like I would want that control for myself. If I'm definitely in this much pain, like why can't I choose to stop living? Yeah. I think control is a big part of it. And I think being in control of, something, I mean, especially your life and something as important as towards the end of your life, I think people need that control. And I think when the religious aspect comes into it, they kind of give that some of that control to God. And they kind of use that as a way to say that I don't need to be in control of these situations. But I think for the most part, Everyone likes to be in control of their life. And I don't think that I can imagine a world where I wouldn't want that control, especially towards like the end where you could make it a much positive, not positive, but almost a better situation for yourself and for everyone around you. Yeah. Um, So I think control is definitely a big part of it. And there was like some chapters talking about how even just having the medication or having access to the medication gave that person such control over their life and their treatments that it made them even more open to other treatments or kind of like trial treatments. I think one of the um, patients that were interviewed talked a lot about how she was open to like trying all these trial treatments that actually gave her like five more years onto her life but she needed that control and that backup of having medical aided dying kind of like in her plan B, like if things went downhill fast. And I think like just having access and having that in your head, like gives you such better, like peace of mind. And they talked a lot about in the book, how like, what is it? Like two thirds of the people don't even end up, using it yeah i was gonna say oh i think it's a th- i thought it was a third but was I, it a that third? I don't it remember third two thirds but like a good chunk of people yeah don't even end up taking it but just like having that peace of mind towards the end of your life and like knowing that you can have control and like you're able to do this for yourself if you like want to at the end and i think right. And it's more, it's much more than just like, oh, I had a bad day. Like, I think I'm going to take my, the medicine today. Like the doctors like come and everyone supports you. It's not like an impulsive decision. A lot of the doctors are like there with you every step of the way. They um, like, will talk to you and like, be like, all right, like I'm 
hearing that you feel this way, like let's wait a week, let's wait a couple weeks. If you're still feeling this way, like then we can move forward in the process, but it's never like an impulsive decision and just having that kind of backup for you, I think is really important for a lot of people. And it was interesting when I was, my mom actually read this book as well and she was chatting with me about it. And she said that she thinks like she would rather like just have the medicine and like, she probably wouldn't end up taking it, which she's been saying for many, many years, like she is all about like pulling the plug, like taking the medicine and she lets everyone know for sure. But she thinks like now after reading the book that she probably won't ever end up taking it, but just knowing that she could would be like so much peace of mind for her. And I think that would be for a lot of people. Yeah. Well, the doctors in the book, at least the ones that Diane interviewed, um, exactly kind of what you said, they were with that person or the, you know, multitude of people that have had this happen or that have chosen this route, they were with them from beginning to end. And they were with them in their bedroom, surrounded by family. And there was one lady he even talked about who uh, had like a a going away party of sorts. It's kind of a weird concept, but they had all family and friends over. And then they went to bed that night and then the doctor was with her. And it was like a one big kind of go out strong kind of thing. And it was, everyone was happy. Um, I thought that was weird. I, I don't know if I'd want to go out quite that way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I thought that was interesting too. Cause I think the biggest part about, or at least for me thinking about like taking this medication, like as an older person is like the timing of it, because one of the rules is you have to take it yourself. So you can't wait long enough that you're so like debilitated that you aren't able to take the medication one. And then like taking it too soon. If you think like you could have more good days, but I think you have to find that balance. So that was really interesting to read about too. That likely is a question that me and you, I would imagine would only be able to answer in the moment. There's no way we could possibly predict exactly what our pain level would need to be in order to take this type of medication. Yeah, no, definitely not. <laughs> it would be, yeah. yeah. What do you think, there's um, something I read too about, um, there's a, like a physician's code of ethics that says, uh, well, so I mean, the, the American Medical, Medical Association still opposes this type of practice. Um because it, it is, I'm going to quote here, fundamentally incompatible with a physician's role as a healer and because it would be difficult or impossible to control and would provide some serious risk. But the, the whole idea of a physician as a healer, if you're a healer, surely you shouldn't be, uh, well, I guess you, you technically can't administer it because you have to drink it yourself, but, you know, kind of support a person through this. What's your, what are your thoughts on that? Hmm. Yeah, that one's interesting because I think the physician's role as a healer is a little bit of like an archaic term. And they did do like a interview or I think it was a lecture from one of the doctors that was talking about this, how uh, medical students are just now like learning in school about like medical aid and dying and kind of more about death because a lot of throughout like 
previous years, like they've been taught, like we are here to heal. We're going to make you better. And I think there comes a point in like a patient's care where there is no getting better. And it sounds kind of morbid, like lost cause or like there's no hope almost. But if there, there are those cases like in reality. And I think doctors need to acknowledge that, that they can't fix everything. They can't heal everything. And it's not their role to try and heal. It's at that point. How often would you say that doctors and nurses are upfront about that? Maybe they're upfront, maybe they know in their head, but like how often is it that they actually tell the patient that, that all hope is lost? Or is it more of them putting on a good face and you know trying to get them through it? Oh, I don't know. I would just be throwing a number out there. I don't think I have enough experience with doctors yet to say, but, um, I mean, I think they kind of know, I think that conversation is difficult for anyone, even doctors that have done it a thousand times, but I don't think that they hide anything from patients. I would say that they're pretty upfront about it. But I think then it falls back to their personal beliefs. So if they are someone that believes in medical aid and dying, then maybe they'll keep that in their head and maybe they'll offer that as a like solution, not solution, but as a treatment or possibility for the patient. But if they don't support it and don't believe that, I don't think that would even cross their mind, which almost is unfair to the patient because it's like our role to be this unbiased caregiver and advocate for the patient and like give them all of their options. But I do think that a lot of doctors could be um, shaded by their own beliefs in this aspect, at least. Yeah. That's so strange that you know, the medical community that's so, you know, fueled by data and there's, like people have such trust in their primary care physician and others that a, a decision like this, or, you know, the doctor's personal beliefs would even enter this realm. Uh, it's weird that that's kind of like the default, I guess. Um, yeah. But more education needs to be given to medical students. I think if it, especially if it only just started, like I remember in the book, some you know, doctors wouldn't even consider this an option. And if, perhaps if they learned it in school, they would have been like, okay, this, this is an actual thing. It makes sense. Uh, my kind of view on the whole, a physician's role being a healer thing, I think I take a much higher level view of the word healer. Like a healer can mean many, many different things. You just look at it just like very specifically, you heal to get better, but maybe, maybe, uh, uh, you know, walking someone through, holding their hand through this process of medical aid and dying, maybe that is a form of healing them. It's a form of mental healing. It's a, giving them that control back is, in essence, healing them. So if, if you look at that, like that definition, obviously I'm just one guy here. I don't know what this medical code actually is. I'm not in that field at all. But if you take that view, then you're not going against this code of ethics. Um, so might be a way to justify it. I don't know. Yeah, no, I can definitely see that. So moving on to kind of like the, the arguments that support medical aid and dying, I know we've kind of bounced to it already, uh, but from a previous podcast, I believe it was episode 
five, I want to say, when we talked about um, pleasure and autonomy, the only two things that are valued as objective good. And if you agree with that, then I would imagine in order to be, you know, intellectually honest and consistent, I would imagine you would need to support medical aid in dying. It seems like one follows from the other. So in order to not infringe on someone's autonomy, medical aid in dying needs to be an option. And if medical aid in dying would maximize the person's pleasure, then of course it should be supported. So if the only two things that are valued as objective goods support medical aid in dying, I don't know how you could say it's a bad thing. No, it definitely correlates. And yeah, we are taught even in nursing school and medical school that like autonomy of the patient, like that is pretty much number one and then do no harm and do good pretty much um, is what we're taught. So I think I agree with you completely. I think the autonomy of the patient allowing them access to this is very important. And I think medical aided dying gives the patient autonomy and with like, like you said, like all the safeguards in place and all the rules they have to follow and every step it's a, like the long process I think is very safe and very important to patient autonomy to be able to choose when you yeah. die and how right. you die if it comes to that. One more scenario maybe I'll give you before we wrap it up, but the, the whole idea of being able, well, number one, understanding that line of when it's okay to choose medical aid and dying it and what that pain level is and what that loss of dignity maybe is like, but also what about the self-administration? Like you gave an example earlier. What about someone with, is it, is it Parkinson's was the example in the book, I think, who actually can't give themselves this medication because they can't lift their arms and technically it, it'd be illegal for a doctor to give them uh, this medication, uh, even if they have expressed very clear, very explicit consent that this is what they want. So it, it, that's one of those situations where like, yeah, it's great. We can all say, yeah, we want this control, but that there's a person who under the law right now does not have control, uh, even though, you know, the, the medication exists and it would be, you know, a very clean, easy death. They can't self-administer. Do you think that's something where the law needs to change or is that going too far? Um, no, I definitely think those patients should have control as well. And I think there should be a way to adapt for that. I don't know if I have the answer. They talked about how like mixing up the medication and like holding it up to the patient and then like sucking it through a straw, like that is perfectly legal. But like there definitely are blurred lines with this and yeah. It can get really tricky when you can't self-administer. And that's when the people come in on the other side saying that it could turn into abuse. But, and yeah, I honestly don't have the answer for that. That's where I empathize with the other side is it's tough to offer support for something outright when the lines are still blurred. And maybe the only way that'll come is through time. Yeah. And I don't, yeah, I don't think there will ever be a time that the lines aren't blurred on this. Yeah. But, maybe more clear is a better way to say it. Yeah. I don't know, but I do think it's important for them to have options as well, which 
I don't know what they are, but if they make it clear when they're in their right state of mind and they're still in like a right state of mind, I don't see why a physician wouldn't be able to do that as long as the physician is willing. I think that would be really taxing on them as well. So I think that is another aspect to look into. Yeah. How likely do you think physicians are to like, even if they support the concept of medical aid and dying, even if like even for me, I can imagine it. Maybe if I was a physician and I'm, I'm in support of this, I would find it very, very difficult to be the one to administer this. I would need to like somehow totally and 100% convince myself that this is the right thing for that individual. Uh, and maybe that only happens through conversations with them, with family, with friends. Um, but what's your take? Like, do you think this would be an easier thing for physicians to wrap their heads around or would it still be like extremely tough? Yeah, I still think it'd be pretty like emotionally taxing for anyone. And, but if you're at that point and like, you know, they're of sound mind, you know, this is their wishes, like the family's all there. Like there's no like negativity around it almost like it's a positive thing for the fam, like in their minds and the situation is like, everything's perfect. I guess I'm just thinking of like the ideal situation. I think it would be okay, but I know not every situation is going to be like that. And I think that could be really difficult. Yeah. I don't know if you'd ever enter a a totally doubt free environment. There's always going to be, some level of doubt. And also, I mean, something else they mentioned in the book was timing has to be so, so specific. Like there's some sort of drug that you take to like prepare your stomach uh, that lines it. And then you have the, the actual solution that you drink. Uh, And sometimes there's been cases where people drink like way, way too much and they get very, very sick and very ill from it. And there's people who don't drink enough uh, you would think it'd be, maybe I'm, I'm oversimplifying this, but there are ways that it can go wrong. Uh, so like that even, that plays in, like the physician needs to be very experienced and oh my gosh, what's that training process like to get the physician ready for this? I can't imagine. <laughs> yeah, I think definitely there needs to be more research and there should be a better medication out there than one that could either take 15 minutes or four hours for the person to die. Like you don't want to draw anything out. So I think there's a lot more that needs to be researched and needs to be done in this before um, we could even convince it to be a national deal. But um, yeah, it's interesting, but I definitely think that physicians would have a, hard time kind of wrapping their head around it. I mean, right. me personally, like I say like all this stuff, like, Oh, like I support it and everything, but I can't even imagine having to do that for a patient. But right. I think it's kind of situational based. You're right. No, for sure. Now I know it's, it's hard to imagine with us, you know, in our current lives, but uh, like Diane kind of ends every, uh, chapter in or every interview, I'm curious, what would be a quote unquote good death for you down the line? Hmm. Yeah. She ends every chapter like that. And it's always this interesting to hear in it. It does make you think about yourself. And as 
like a super young, I don't know if it's worse thinking about it when you're young or thinking about it when you're old and maybe almost to that point. So I think it's definitely good to have the conversation probably young and be open to it. Um, But a good death, uh, I think for me would be to be comfortable, surrounded by my loved ones, pretty cliche answer, Um, be in no pain, no trauma, and yeah, that's about it. <laughs> yeah, I agree with all of that. Yeah, I think like the most important thing that I got from this book and that everyone should get from this book is that this conversation needs to be had. Whether like it's uncomfortable or not for you, I think it's important for everyone to make their wishes known. I think... I've kind of grown up in a situation that is not the like usual situation where my mom talks about this all the time, which sounds a little morbid, but everyone that my mom knows, knows her death wishes. Like she is before this book. Yes. Before, way before this book, like she is not letting her life be drawn like on further than it needs to be. And I think, every single one of her friends knows it. And so, and so I've kind of grown up with that. And like, we've had these conversations many times and she tells me all the time that when it's time, like I need to pull the plug. So she's definitely made that a more comfortable conversation for me. And um, I think that's important. I think letting everyone like know like what you really want. Cause as scary as it is and as dark as it is, like you never know when that time's going to come. And I think the last thing that anyone wants is to be in a situation towards the end of their life that they don't want to be in and they can't do anything about it. So I think, yeah, yeah, just being open to the conversation and making sure that your voice is heard. And Diane did a, I think it was like the very, very last thing in her book was like a phone call interview recorded with her grandson. I think it was. Yeah. And yeah. And it was just like pretty much letting him know like on record, like what she wants to happen when she can't make those decisions for herself. And Honestly, I think everyone should have that. And I need to go do that after this with my family. <laughs> well, cool. Is there any anything else you want to hit on in the book or maybe something that was interesting to you or, um, or anything you want to leave the listener with? Hmm. I don't think so. I think just opening that conversation is probably the most important takeaway from this. Yep. For sure. Go so, record a video and make sure yeah. your wishes are known. There's got there's some documents too. I'll see if I can like link those somehow, but that you, you fill out uh, like what is it? Like a, a, a directive? I'm forgetting the name of the paperwork. Uh, advanced directive. Advanced directive, yeah. Something like yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah, I definitely yeah, everyone should look into that and yeah, call up their loved ones and tell them they love them and then tell them how they want to die. <laughs> <laughs> and on that note, super we'll, lovely. <laughs> we'll wrap up the episode. Rachel, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Yeah, thank you. And signing out. Talk to you guys in the next one. <laughs>